Hello and welcome to the weekly Bunker Roundtable. I'm Justin Quirk. On this week's edition, free speech in the spotlight. What are the repercussions of the Rushdie attack? All of our dinosaurs are missing. Britain lurches into another week with apparently nobody in charge. And with Facebook trying to clean up its act, what is the next app threatening our elections? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Thanks for joining us here on The Bunker. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. From as little as £2 a month, you too can join our thronging masses and get them show early and ad-free plus great merchandise. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. You can also help out by filling out our listener survey. The link is in the show notes so you can multitask and do it while you're listening. Right, let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back to former BBC journalist and Chancellor of the University of Kent, Gavin Esler. Hello. Yes, good to be with you. Gavin, we're going to be talking about the government's failure to get to grips with the cost of living crisis later, but were you impressed by Starmer's plan to freeze energy bills with a windfall tax announced today? Well, I was impressed by someone who has a plan and who's turned up and is prepared to deliver it. I mean, the great thing about Boris Johnson was um, he, he would do nothing in person. You know, he'd actually turn up and talk about plans and they would never come to anything. Starmer's plan could actually work. It will be expensive. I think uh, the Institute of Fiscal Studies has done, done a costing and so on. It will be expensive. But compared to, you know, uh, Sunak's eat out to help out and some of the other things that have been done, it might conceivably reduce inflation from what was predicted, 13% to about 9%. It would do so by effectively uh, 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 going after some of the most unpopular things that are going to happen, which is that we can't heat our homes or we can't afford to eat. And uh, it is reasonably coherent, but it will be expensive. And it also, it shows that Starmer is awake. It's about time, as it seems to me, that Labour started to say, Britain is in such a mess right now with the energy companies, the water companies, the train strikes, the train companies themselves. We expect some kind of public services from people who are in the private sector. And if we don't get them, it seems to me Starmer could say, if we don't get them, we're going to tax you more highly. We're going to even look at whether you should come into public ownership. And I think that in the current climate in Britain would be a vote winner. Also back on the show, we have comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Ahir, you're not at the Edinburgh Fringe this week. Are you missing anything about it? Are you getting the weird muscle memory feeling at around 8pm each night that you should be somewhere you've forgotten to go? Yes, uh, but then there is the wonderful uh, feeling of waking up clear-headed uh, early in the morning, which is uh, also nice. Uh, there, there is, I, I am certainly missing in what what can be quite a solitary and isolating job, the level of camaraderie that uh, you tend to get at the Edinburgh Fringe. So yes, I miss, my, I miss my colleagues. Our special guest is freelance journalist and host of the award-winning Media Storm podcast, Helena Wadia. Helena, congratulations on the gong. What did you win? Thank you so much. Uh, we won Best Current Affairs Podcast at the British Podcast Awards, which was truly shocking given uh, the absolute incredible competition who we were up against. This is a legitimately big deal in the podcast world, isn't it? As the awards go, this is right up there. Well, somebody called it the Oscars of the podcasting world. Now, I'm not saying that that's it, but that's it. <laughs> was that somebody... Helena Wadia of the award-winning Media Storm podcast. <laughs> no, it was my mum. No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> 
The major story of the weekend was, of course, the horrific knife attack on Salman Rushdie. Thankfully, the latest reports as of time of recording are that the writer is off a ventilator and was able to speak to his family. But the political repercussions of this attempted assassination are still unfolding. To widespread anger, Iran's foreign ministry blamed the attack on Rushdie himself and his supporters this week. And on Sunday, Vice News reported that the suspect, Hadi Matar, had had contact with Iran's revolutionary guards in the past, citing evidence from European and Middle Eastern intelligence although it said there was no evidence that Iran had directly organised the attack on Rushdie. What will this attack on a symbol of free speech mean for tensions with Iran and for free speech in itself? Gavin, you must have covered this story numerous times during your news career. The general sense seemed to be that the threat against Rushdie had, if not been lifted, then certainly receded. Yes, I think that that is true. Uh, And in fact, I, I... Checked my copy of Shame, which was his second uh, novel, which was published in the 1980s, and it was signed by Salman. So I must have had interviews with him or talked to him or met him ever since then. So after Midnight's Children, and he had such a big impact on, on so many of us, because I think, frankly, the British imagination had just wiped out partition and what it meant and, and, and how horrible it was for so many people. And even friends of mine now who are British, a bit of an Asian background, uh, have been telling me stories from their grandparents of what happened in 1947, which are, you know, real life echoes of some of the brilliant work that Salman did. And he clearly, I suspect, thought that it had receded. He was in the United States, it would be more difficult. And he was reasonably protected and secure, and that perhaps it had gone away. But this, you know, uh, you can't, you can't predict what some twisted individual whose name I hope we just forget uh, and I hope he goes away for a very long time and suffers whatever American justice has for him. You, you, you can't just constantly protect yourself against these people. What you can do, however, is say that the Iranian state and people, some of whom may be uh, so-called respectable, living respectable lives in other Western countries now, but connected with the Iranian regime, were part of the fatwa against him. And I think that those are the people that we have to, because the big picture that you're talking about is what kind of relationship we have with Iran. And that is going to be very, very difficult because the Iranian regime is has made its people poor. Iranians are, are, are successful all over the world, including Britain and America, and they're not very successful at home. And we just have to remember that. But they are successful at stirring up trouble from Lebanon, to Yemen and other places. And that war, those those wars, those proxy wars continue. I mean, what do you think are likely to be those diplomatic repercussions? I mean, Iran is already largely isolated in terms of economic sanctions. Um, is there much more that can be brought to bear on them? Well, you know, I was thinking about that old George Bush axis of evil type thing. The, the, I, don't, I don't go in for the rhetoric, but there are links between Russia and Iran and potentially between other countries and Iran, and Turkey's keeping uh, certain, uh, you know, uh, channels of communication open. So is China, because Iran remains oil, oil rich, although it is underdeveloped, because it could be could be much better. What I can say is that from being, in, I've spent quite a lot of time in various Gulf countries, uh, including the Emirates and elsewhere, and I was shocked by this was must have been about ten years ago. Uh, a political leader in one of the, the those countries saying to me, if we had to live under the shadow of the Iranian bomb, we wish that the Americans would take them out. And he didn't specify what that meant, but it was kind of kind of obvious. So that region, 
that whole region remains divided. And Iran does have terrific influence, particularly in Lebanon, which is another, I'm sorry, but Lebanon's a wonderful country, but it's effectively now a failed state. Uh, the war in Yemen, Yemen is a is a humanitarian disaster which continues and which we don't really cover very much in the West. So, so, so Iran's capacity to stir up trouble remains, and this is perhaps just one particularly shocking reminder. Even if the government is not directly implicated, they set the tone for this person's actions. I mean, it's easily forgotten now that when the Satanic Verses controversy began in 1989, many Western politicians and sort of leading intellectuals effectively said Rushdie had provoked Muslims and was, you know, the author of his own misfortune to some degree. Uh, This week, an edition of Question Time from 2007 resurfaced with Shirley Williams saying that the British government was not wise to give him a knighthood because he had deeply offended Muslims and she was roundly condemned by Christopher Hitchens on that episode for her pains. Um, We don't seem to have seen really any of the it's his own fault line of attack this time. Why do you think this has been different? Well, uh, I think because it was pretty shameful at, at the time, frankly. I mean, the, he is someone who was born into the Muslim faith, who became what was the Iranians said was an apostate. He gave up He gave up his faith and he wrote novels and he had a very, he has a very wicked sense of humour. And some people don't get the joke. And, and of course, uh, treading on people's religious beliefs, particularly when they edge in some cases to the fanatical, is quite dangerous. But he knew what he was getting into. He's a very, very, very bright man. Uh, and, and also it's, it's much wider than this. You know, we see the, we see the threats against J.K. Rowling and, uh, for, for, for saying, saying certain things, uh, rather than an engagement with writers for what they have written and what they may believe and what they may wish to discuss. And uh, Margaret Atwood has had similar kinds of things in uh, in North America. It is not confined simply to the Iranian regime and these, these, these kind of people. We also have this problem in the West. We have a problem with people expressing in a perfectly reasonable way views which maybe I disagree with and you disagree with, and they receive death threats. And writers in particular do that because they are, I suppose, at the cutting edge of cultural change in in the West. Helena, um, you'd think that attacks on freedom of expression um, would be a fairly open and shut case for, particularly for other members of the media, yet, as we say, throughout Rushdie's fatwa, and particularly around his knighthood in 2007, um, and we also saw an instance like the Charlie Hebdo attack, there's always been a certain amount of equivocation up until now. Why do you think this is? I don't know if I'm going to say something that is completely different to uh, what Gavin just said. But for me, I actually think it is slightly ridiculous to uh, kind of align Salman Rushdie and what has happened with him with a decades long fatwa to somebody like JK Rowling. I do think that some people have kind of seized upon this free speech narrative to kind of compare it to these culture war spats on Twitter. I feel like people are, are, are taking this attack on Salman Rushdie to push forward the, the kind of, you can't say anything these days brigade. You know, when I Googled Salman Rushdie yesterday, uh, the first five articles that came up were about JK Rowling or mentioned JK Rowling. And the comparisons I've seen saying that J.K. Rowling should be able to say whatever she wants about a minority community 
who are already on the front line of a mental health crisis, regardless of whether, you know, what she's saying is accurate, fact, harmful, because she's as brave as Salman Rushdie for tweeting, uh, it's kind of beyond me. Freedom of speech is incredibly important. And Rushdie has always stood up for, I think, what he calls the right to the right to offend in the sense that he said before, you know, people have the fundamental right to take an argument where somebody is offended by what they say. But I think when people are using this to say that a, a targeted group, often a minority group, are simply offended, I think that's when we lose complete nuance. People aren't simply offended. People's lives are being directly negatively impacted by those who say they have the right to offend. So I don't think it's being like, I don't think it's a case of this, oh, I take offense um, because I'm I'm a snowflake or whatever it is. I think it's about the fact these minority communities who are usually the target of the free speech have already got incredibly high suicide rates or are more likely to be in abusive relationships or are the target of hate crimes. So I think that those people kind of completely disengage with with relative power. So who actually has a huge platform to offend? Do they use that platform to expand our knowledge, to challenge those in power, to expand our minds? Or do they use their platform to punch down on and spread inaccurate information on minority communities? I suppose the counter to that, to push back on that, would be that you could say Rowling has done neither. Um, and she is also, you know, has been steadily receiving death threats. Which I think when you say about why those two stories were getting elided together, I can see why her case, <coughs> all right, and the specifics may be different. But I think, you know, I can see why those cases are elided together. But again, I think it's the kind of threat of a decades long fatwa versus um, the threat of people on Twitter who have five followers. Now, this is not me saying that death threats on Twitter should not be taken seriously. I am a woman of colour on the internet. I know about death threats. And I think that um, they absolutely should be taken seriously. But they need to be taken seriously also in the context of the way that they are portrayed on Twitter in the context of the fact that the group that... JK Rowling often talks the most about receive absolutely unprecedented levels of hate crime and death threats and actual killings. I think there is a nuance that is missed when it is directly related in in such a casual way. I hear you get up on stage as a stand-up comedian. You're more sort of on the front line of this than certainly I am. How conscious are you of self-censoring your material in the current climate? Do you feel like you're more careful now? Or? So I think that uh, comedians as as a collective tend to be uh, quite a pompous and self-important bunch uh, about our, <laughs> about our pre- uh, profession. Um, and certainly um, as, as a comedian um, – I would say that again, there, there is a tremendous level of difference between someone who has the absolute ruler of a theocracy putting a price on their head uh, versus uh, the sort of issues that come up in in my life on the yes. on the regs. Um, I certainly on on Saturday night I spent all of the weekend um, sort of thinking about this and very upset about uh, what, what had happened to uh, Mr. Rushdie and talked about it on stage at the Brighton Comedia on Saturday night and extensively about 
like what what sort of god needs protecting in this way and uh you know and and i felt it very freeing to be able to be on stage and not have any worry that i could uh say anything that i wanted and did say anything that i wanted in that context and in that room about uh, muslims and hindus and buddhists and christians uh and whatnot and and felt sort of fine saying that and i i think that that's a very that's a very important thing but to me and a precious thing uh, to me that I was able to stand up and freely uh, discuss that. In, in a slightly more direct way, I mean, you've had incidents in the past year with both Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle who've been physically attacked on stage. Um, does it feel like a riskier job than it once was? I think that the Chris Rock thing is just is, – is, Weirdly, like another matter entirely, because there's there's a level of personal connection and fame that's involved in that sort of thing that I remember discussing it at the time and saying that it felt like you were watching a conflict between the Greek gods. You know, like it's like, oh, my God, like Zeus has an issue with Apollo today. Like this is a very like that felt very, very removed from the actual experience uh, <laughs> of anyone that uh I would know. And interestingly, a couple of weeks later, I was playing at the comedy store and Chris Rock dropped in to do a bit of a warm up ahead of some shows that he was doing in London and was was very, very funny uh, about the whole thing and said that his main takeaway was that he was just pleased that he took the hit because he's like, that guy played Ali. <laughs> and I, took, <laughs> I took a hit from Ahmed Ali. I feel pretty good about that. Also, a casual, casual drop in there that um, you know, just dropped in to see your show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, that, was, that was my opener that evening, uh, of course. <laughs> Yeah, Chappelle was attacked on stage by someone who I believe had like a, a replica firearm yeah. that had a blade uh, attached to it. And this person now is being tried, I think, both for that and for a separate case of attempted murder. And that is an extraordinarily, extraordinarily serious thing. And I certainly hope that the vast majority of people who object to the things that Dave Chappelle may have to say would agree that jumping onto stage with a knife is not the way to discuss any issues that you may have with that. If you're on holiday in Greece and you see a dishevelled blonde guy wandering around the local mini market, don't bother asking him to come home and do his job. He apparently isn't interested. The cost of living crisis continues to dominate the national conversation, with energy bills forecast to surge above £5,000 next year, and we've got an absentee government to deal with it. Tory heir apparent Liz Truss defended energy companies' massive earnings last week, saying profits should not be considered dirty and evil. Read the room, eh, Liz? Outgoing PM Boris Johnson has admitted the current help for people struggling with energy bills is not enough, and says he expects more money to follow. Then he went on holiday again. With all of the country's warning signals flashing red, why does nobody seem to be getting hold of the situation? And could the current energy crisis turn out to be this administration's poll tax? Helena, um, Liz Truss has so far been reluctant to pledge extra help towards energy bills if she becomes PM. With the problem so obvious, why has this been the case? Well, it is interesting, isn't it? It's, I think, was it Martin Lewis, who is somewhat the, the UK's patron saint of personal finance. Um, wasn't it Martin Lewis who said, called it a zombie government? I, 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 that really is is seemingly what it is. I know Boris Johnson had that meeting with the energy company heads, but it seemed nothing really much came of it. The notes afterwards said they were committed to working together. But again, he was saying there's no sort of firm action that's going to happen, or he was implying that, until the next prime minister is in place. Liz Truss, very likely to be the next prime minister, as you said, hasn't really laid out what the plan might be. Um, I think she seems to be kind of 
struggling to keep up with the changing circumstances and the worse and worse forecasts. Um, they keep saying, you know, oh, we're waiting till another prime minister's in Downing Street, yet they don't seem to have many concrete plans on how she's going to tackle this if and when she does get into Downing Street. I think the biggest problem with saying, well, we've got to wait for the next prime minister to be, to be put in place is that we kind of forget that it's an emergency. And sometimes when a crisis like this is is happening, we also, we also almost become, I think, a little bit numb to even the phrases. The phrase cost of living is actually quite shocking and bleak in itself. But Tory supporters kind of saying it would be wrong to come up with policies now because it needs to, the entire government to be looking at it. And the entire government won't be in place until September. But I guess the huge problem being that the first direct debits for the end of this year are going to be locked in by the end of this month. And that's before the new PM comes in in September. So people are worried and rightly so. Why haven't they been saying anything? Is it possibly because they just don't know what to do? You mentioned that, I mean, uh, Johnson down the beach for his second holiday in two weeks. That meeting you were discussing that he attended with the energy bosses. Um, the Sunday Times reported on Sunday that he apparently showed up at that because he was bored. And uh, it's like, well, yes, you and us both. Um, does it even matter what he says about anything at this point? Or as you say, are we just in this weird kind of interregnum? That's a good point. I think potentially people have lost all faith that even, you know, some people might have had in Boris Johnson. So perhaps it doesn't matter what he says at this point. But at the same time, it is a crisis. It is an emergency. In a way, I do think there has been more scrutiny on Keir Starmer as Labour leader to produce a plan for the cost of living crisis um, rather than the Prime Minister and this government itself. And he did, you know, today set out the emergency plan. Of course, usually we relate emergencies with urgency. Seems like it took a while to get this emergency plan out, but it is out now. And he called it radical today in a uh, media interview. Perhaps it doesn't necessarily matter what Boris Johnson says, but I do think that people have been looking to who might be the next prime minister and people are scrutinising what Liz Truss says. And perhaps Keir Starmer's plan that was put in place today might shine a bigger spotlight on what both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss have to say in the next few days. Gavin, why do you think Truss is so desperate to ignore this issue? I mean, assuming she wins the uh, the leadership election, she'll have to face this issue soon enough when she comes into office. And as much as they're not going to be destitute, it's not like these increases aren't going to be at least noticed by, say, middle-aged men with massive houses in Surrey with have a lot of radiators. You know, this is going to hit everyone across the board. Yeah, I, I almost stopped you at the sentence, uh, the sentence when you said, why is Liz Truss so desperate? That just <laughs> struck me that the rest of it was kind of, you know, uh, extraneous. What, what can we say? Uh, I've just, uh, I've just come back from a week's holiday, uh, abroad. And one of the things I was reading about was the mess that Britain was in in the sixties and seventies. And basically the sense was, uh, we were the sick man of Europe. We had lost an empire and hadn't found a role, you know, all those kind of things. And part of the role was found after 1973 by joining, joining the European Union. But we still kept changing our governments very, very uh, rapidly throughout the, throughout the 70s until Mrs. Thatcher came in in 1979. And there was a sense that we were no, the one thing in this mess of a constitution that we have is that people have always said, well, it gives us stable government and, you know, it works because it created the British Empire and so on. Well, that's all gone. It doesn't work. 
it doesn't give us stable governments. We keep changing prime ministers, you know, every every 18 months or so, rather like, uh, you know, the Italian government immediately after the war. And we're facing train strikes, inflation, stagnation, governments are short-lived, you can't get a doctor's appointment, you can't get an NHS dentist, generally, you can't. So uh, what we've got is... Um, after 12 years of conservative government, we have got a profound sense of disillusionment and a sense of real incompetence. And also, unless you're the 160,000 conservatives who are voting for one of these two people, a sense that they're not actually very good. And so it's not surprising that we have, a, what can you say, despite the summer weather or perhaps because of it as well, a sense of disillusionment about the way in which the country is is heading. And it seems to me that that disillusionment is reflected particularly in Scotland and Northern Ireland, where there are other problems and they're looking at Westminster thinking, is there something just rotten about the Westminster system because it doesn't work? So I think it's a, I think it's a bigger picture than the two people who are running for being prime minister. It's the system which allows us to take seriously two people running for prime minister who actually aren't very good. And you mentioned that period of the mid to late 70s during particularly Callan's Labour government. Um, in British politics, that looms very large in the collective imagination as this sort of benchmark for a dysfunctional state. How do you think where we are now compares? Well, I think we are a dysfunctional state. And I think there are so many de- delusions. Uh, one of them is that, is, is that uh, we're the envy of the world. We're not, actually. Even <laughs> if you go to rural Ireland or rural Spain, you see roads which are well paved without generally without potholes. Of course, there's potholes there, but they sort of have things that, 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 that happen. I was talking to a friend from Lithuania who, who came back to Britain and she said to me, you know, we can take a photograph of a pothole in Lithuania and send it to the local government representative and they fix it. Now, I know not all politics is about potholes, but it is about can I get an NHS dentist or can I get a doctor's appointment or is Heathrow Airport working properly and are the flights working and why are there train strikes and why do people feel the need to go on strike? Because actually they are really being shafted by the way in which this economy is being run. So I don't really remember how bad it was in the 1970s, but I know it's, I'm absolutely convinced it's pretty bad now. And at the core of it, is this sense of complacency that we've muddled through for generations. Well, we've, when we muddle through, we get into a real mess. I hear the huge inflation seen in that period in the 70s triggered Thatcherism and then sort of 18 years of Tory rule in response to it. Will we hopefully see a shift happen in the opposite direction this time, do you think? I think it's it's interesting reflecting on the the similarities and whatnot because all discussions of the similarities remind me of did you see when a little while ago people were talking about the heat wave of now and saying like oh well there was a heat wave in 1976 yeah. but then they showed you a picture of like globally what was going on in 1976 versus 2022 and you're like hold on it's there, yeah there are similarities but it's pretty pretty crucial uh, that there are differences uh, here as well so it seems like. This year, and I think that the energy stuff in particular really has the feeling of a straw that broke the camel's back after a dozen years of this shit. You have what has in large part been the result of an exogenous shock with uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine causing energy prices globally. to be, And that's a really crucial part of the problem that we're in. It's not the entire fault of the Tory party as much as I believe that when I stub my toe, it's largely the fault of the Conservative Party. I think that... As the others have been saying, it's just other things 
have all come to a head uh, at this stage. And it really does feel at the moment that absolutely everything in the country is either like at best creaking. Right. It's not a country at ease with itself, uh, as I've said before. And so I think that there is going to be some sort of dramatic shift uh, after this, if only because realistically, the alternative is unthinkable, right, for a government to end up going and boop, you're on your own. After all that, catch you later. Um, just feels unthinkable. Why do you think that issue around the energy bills has had that sort of crystallizing effect? Because, you know, one could argue there's been a huge amount of extremely, you know, nefarious things that this government has done to the population over the past 12 years, you know, from you know, various parts, you know, the way local authorities were treated under austerity, the way, you know, disabled people have been treated, you know, under sort of uh, cost-cutting measures. You know, there's been a whole heap of things like this. Well, so firstly, sort of during the coalition years, a lot of the other people have written and spoken much more eloquently about this than I will. Uh, a lot of stuff was very intentionally cut in a way that wouldn't damage the voting coalition of the Conservative Party, right? And we're now, after a dozen years, way past the point where that can keep happening. So now I, I can't imagine how high up the income distribution you would have to be for the idea that a £5,000 annual energy bill wouldn't be a pretty serious problem mm-hmm. uh, in your life. The fact that it now is affecting everyone and affecting, let's face it, conservative voters, the people who you were talking about uh, right at the beginning of this section. And perhaps that sort of then crystallizes quite how everything's going, right? Like, ultimately, everyone, basically, I, I don't even know how private GPs work. That's how, uh, but uh, like, I assume that basically everyone has to rely on uh, going to a GP at some point or another. And if that's impossible, and you can't get anywhere on transport and the, even if you're a driver, the roads are shit and, you know, the energy bills uh, all coming. It, it just creates a perfect storm of fuck <laughs> uh, that, that we're all uh, sort of living in right now. Helena, uh, you mentioned this sort of unofficial opposition role that Martin Lewis has been taking on. Um, as to the, the actual opposition, how do you sort of assess where they are at the moment? You mentioned Starmer's obviously come out today with more sort of concrete proposals. Yeah, in a way, I think Keir Starmer definitely went big with his emergency plan today. I think that, as I said before, it took a little while. At one point, it seemed like it was this huge political open goal that Labour didn't didn't really shoot. So um, I think it took a while. But they're saying they'll prevent the energy cap from rising, paid in extra tax from oil and gas giants, um, and they'll remove that tax loophole uh, in the windfall tax, which was announced by Rishi Sunak uh, when he was Chancellor earlier this year. And there is some long-term planning in there, which I was quite happy to see about insulating, uh, I think they said 19 million homes across the country uh, over the next decade, which will reduce energy demand and lower bills. So I think Keir Starmer has gone quite big on on the plan and putting in the long-term insulation plan, which a lot of people, especially in the Conservative government, seemed to ignore for quite a while, is also potentially a, a good move. And as I said, I do think it might put just a little bit more pressure on uh, the Tory leadership hopefuls to see what they come up with. 
I also think that the the energy price cap itself as a policy is like it plays an interesting part uh, in all of this, right? Because you had sort of when Ed Miliband first floated it was Red Ed and some like horrific, unthinkable Marxist, and then the May government actually institute it, uh, right? And because there's like a universality to this figure that's being put in all of these. Uh, news reports right like in the same way that you know you might you might get a rail season ticket but another commuter is doing a different journey than you and yours might be particularly expensive but now that there is like a number and it just says the average household will be on x because that's the maximum amount but realistically given what's going on at the moment like everyone's just going to be on the maximum amount there is something sort of universalizing about that and like every single household in the country will be like oh that's the number that was, so I think that, that might be another reason why uh, particularly this price cap news has uh, impacted people the way that it has. And just finally here, how do you think we're going to square the fact we have a completely out-of-office, home-for-the-holidays government with Jacob Rees-Mogg's ongoing campaign to get people out of the <laughs> box room and back into the office? Um, should he leave one of his famous passive-aggressive notes for Johnson on the beach bar in Greece? Uh <laughs> Yeah, I think I think it's been really remarkable having the people who said that. Well, of course, absolutely no one could adequately do their job uh, from uh, you know if, to a certain extent. Maybe uh, already months ago or a year ago, Dominic Raab had proved that you can't effectively do your job at least when you're on a beach in Greece uh, and carbils falling. When realistically, it sounds it sounds quite like being Chancellor of the Exchequer, for example. Like that sounds hard. Like I don't think that I could do it like uh, either at home or in a place but i certainly think i'd probably make even more of a hash of it if i was trying to do it uh from home so it's really remarkable to me uh that that this is the angle that they're going for a a few days ago when quasi Kwarteng said that oh well boris johnson is on his honeymoon he's had his wedding i don't think anyone would begrudge him that it's like no no i i I begrudge him that i think that he should be here now (laughs) Finally, attention older listeners. It's time to admit defeat and close your MySpace and Friendster accounts and probably Facebook too while you're at it. Old school social media is being outstripped among young people by TikTok, the Chinese-owned viral video platform. And both Twitter and Facebook are collapsing with young users according to a Pew Research Centre survey of American teenagers. Some 67% of that group said they only ever used TikTok and 16% said they used it almost constantly. Meanwhile, in the same period, Facebook usage among that group dropped from 71% in 2015 to just 32% in 2022. Given that Facebook dominated the last two presidential elections and that what happens in America grimly happens here next, what is that going to mean for our politics? And seeing that Parliament has closed down its own TikTok account after warnings about data being passed to the Chinese government, should we all be worried? I hear that use of TikTok is absolutely huge. Why is this app so popular? I, I don't know why you're asking me. I'm not a child. So I, I'm, I'm also not. This. I may be the closest thing that we uh, have on this uh, uh, discussion. Um, I think that a large part of it might just be, you know, it, it's the thing that the people slightly older than you aren't on, right? Yeah. And that's the, like, and, you know, in the way that previously, like, fashions in terms of clothes or what have you might have had X number of years in order to cycle and then suddenly become cool again. Seems like... Uh, social media platforms everything might be on an even shorter cycle of just like oh no that's what the millennials did that so the gen z's are going to do this or like even now like facebook you think of as 
something that your parents are on, even at my age of 31. It was something that was used extensively when I was a teenager and in my 20s. But now it's just like, oh, that's the thing that like radicalizes your uncle. <laughs> so why would you go on that? Are you, uh, are you on TikTok yourself? As a I'm not on TikTok comedian. myself, no. Ah. Um, the app is seems to be this complete magnet for controversy at the moment. Reports linked a TikTok challenge to the death of Archie Battersby recently. There's a swathe of absolutely dreadful alpha male influences on there. And a recent BBC report flagged up the vast amount of disinformation relating to the Ukraine war on there. Um, how worried should we be about its rise? Or is this just the same problems we had with Facebook a couple of years ago? Also, this is what I wonder, really. I wonder the extent to which it is particular platforms that are the problem or it's the sort of total wild west of the digital world in and of itself uh, that is the issue. You know, it's like you'd have never thought that Facebook could be among catalysts for a sort of genocide in Myanmar and yet here we are a few years later and that's something that happened and perhaps Twitter could be responsible uh, for awful things and Instagram could be responsible for awful things. TikTok could be uh, responsible for awful things. But uh, yeah, I, I have a feeling that this is the sort of question that we will keep on asking. And if a similar segment runs on this podcast three years from now, it will be a new platform that we are asking the same questions of unless there is any sort of attempt at some sort of oversight or regulation of what happens on these platforms or in these spaces. Helena, as we said there, Facebook's popularity has fallen drastically among young people. Why do you think that's been the case? Is it, as I hear says, it's just everyone's boomer dad sending Nigel Farage memes around? Yeah, look, those statistics definitely do not surprise me at all because I have a lot of teenage cousins and one of my 17-year-old cousins uh, recently told me that I was uncool because I use WhatsApp. So who knew? What? Yeah, that's uncool. What do you not, what are you supposed to use if you don't use? Okay, this absolutely blew my mind. They arranged to hang out using Snapchat, an app where the messages literally delete after you have sent them. Where, what, if you forget where you're going, what do you look at? Like truly it blew my mind. It is absolutely. Is he copying all his social arrangements over to like an old fashioned moleskin (laughs) diary at that point? (laughs) possibly we've gone so far that we've looped all the way back around i don't know um but yeah it doesn't surprise me at all that the users are younger and younger actually in one media storm episode uh we did we were discussing east and southeast asian discrimination during the covid19 pandemic and one influencer i spoke to who is chinese and who uses tiktok said she was getting racist hate comments from children as young as five years old on the app so when she clicked through to their profiles they looked about five years old and yeah it doesn't surprise me that it's the chosen app for teens because apps like tiktok they're designed to keep you scrolling. I read something that TikTok users spend on average, I think, 90 minutes a day on the app. It is literally addictive. And if we all have shorter attention spans now, TikTok's perfect for that. It's got enormous reach, short videos, viral dances, an algorithm that pushes the next video and the next video and the next video on you. And um, should we be worried? I think, yes. I mean, I, I think I'm probably never going to have sounded so old in all my life. But I think for all the fear that my parents had for me when I was a teen going on MySpace or Bebo or Facebook, I don't think it's anywhere near the scale 
of the danger that is on apps like TikTok currently. And we see that with recently the popularity of the influencer Andrew Tate and TikTok and Instagram's seeming refusal to remove him from their platforms. And I think that's because views generate profit for for TikTok. So that algorithm is going to continue to to promote his videos to more and more young boys. I mean, Andrew Tate, Andrew Tate is the, ex, for listeners who don't know, is the extremely aggressive, quote-unquote, alpha male influencer who's racked up a dizzying 11.4 billion views of his videos, which uh, I think we could say are unvarnished at best in terms of their attitude towards women dating sexual yeah. relations. I mean, I would go as far as say, yeah, that they are pretty much teaching young boys to be violent misogynists. Yeah. I mean, in a user-generated environment like TikTok, um, is there any way to control that kind of material? Will it always just skew towards that kind of lowest common denominator with him? I think it's because maybe people viewed TikTok as this kind of silly dance app, whereas perhaps Facebook and Twitter, which are less video-based or image-based, were always thought of as somewhere that people could share their wild thoughts and opinions. But now we've seen misinformation of the scale on TikTok where in November 2020 there was significant election uh, misinformation spreading on TikTok. I think we have to be prepared and I think TikTok and many other platforms really need to up their preventative measures for tackling misinformation before it spreads. And I think one of the biggest problems is that um, when you report, say, uh, a tweet or you report a video, it's usually kind of a machine on the other side establishing whether or not that that breaks the community guidelines rather than a human being. I mean, one chink of light seems to be this uh, new app, which is soaring in popularity from French developers called Be Real. Are you familiar with this? I do love a Be Real. <laughs> can you can you explain for the listeners what this is? They may not uh, may not be aware. So Be Real gives you a notification at some point every twenty four hours, and then you take a photo of exactly what you're doing from the front camera and the selfie camera, and um, yeah, and then that's meant to be you being real. I do have to say that I only have about seven friends on it because as more people are kind of adding me, that makes me want to curate my content a lot more, and therefore I won't be being real. So I'm sticking to my favoured seven close friends. <laughs> A good, good way to be. Apparently, it's also a very good way to find out what clothes your sister has stolen from you. Yes, thank you very much. Shout out to my sister for. I think it's been three, three tops and a dress so far. I've noticed. Um, she's currently living uh, at home with my mum, so uh, she has access to, yeah, my clothes. <laughs> I think your uh, your sister's operational security has been completely compromised there. She's giving away <laughs> all of her, her crimes. Uh, Gavin, with Facebook's popularity declining amongst the young, are we set to see a social media split, do you think, with the older generation continuing to use it and the young going to TikTok and Be Real and Instagram and other places? And what would the impact of that sort of balkanisation be, do you think? Well, I... I, I have difficulty with this whole story, to be honest, because I, I, I feel that we've always been there. You know, teenagers don't buy the Times. They don't read the Financial Times. Generally, some do, but mo- most don't. Um, the 1950s in America, civilization was coming to an end because of Elvis Presley. Uh, by the 1990s, it was because of hip hop. I slightly, I just think when you're younger, you do things that younger people do. And when you're older, you do things that older people do. And sometimes they kind of meet up in the middle. 
there are concerns. I have concerns about the Chinese government running any major media kind of organization or whatever. But the idea that misinformation or disinformation, of course, it is more easily disseminated on Facebook and elsewhere. But if you ever listen to Donald Trump, you were getting a lot of misinformation. And it just happened to be Twitter because he was able to do, do things in 240 characters or whatever it is uh, and get that message out. But he was still lying. He was lying in his newspapers. He was lying on television and so on. And we have misinformation and disinformation here. And we have a partial media, which there's some, some real spots of excellence and some, some not so good. So I appreciate that the technological changes are kind of interesting and that it's here today, gone tomorrow. But teenage fads, which is what we're talking about, because this was a survey of American teenagers, will change. They don't wear the clothes that their granddads wore. Why would they? So I'm less concerned uh, about that than... Uh, and actually, I just realized I must be down with the kids because I've never been on Facebook. So that makes me... and I do It's, a, it's truth social or nothing for Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> it's truth social. No, it's not truth social. Uh, but but the, there are, uh, you know, and, and WhatsApp, I'm afraid I am on WhatsApp, but I do find it kind of, kind of wearing. I've got other ways of communicating with people that I prefer. And I do quite like Twitter because I get, there's a lot of writers and journalists on that who I trust and tend to trust. So, it, you know, it's different strokes for different folks. I don't think this is the worst thing that's happening in the world when we're all going to, you know, suffer from the global warming and the fact that we can't get uh, get our lawns watered or whatever. I think this is more of a kind of summer story about fashions uh, that teenagers love. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. What entertainments have given our panellists a break from the bruising world of heatwaves and politics this week? Gavin? Ah, well, what I've been doing is I've been, as pure escapism, I've been rereading some 1930s uh, American hard-boiled crime fiction, Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler. And the great thing, particularly about Chandler, is the stories by the end, I've realised they never quite make sense, but it doesn't matter. And the other thing that I realise is on every page, the hero is drinking whiskey or something similar, (laughs) which I don't know if that's entirely acceptable nowadays. Perhaps he should be cancelled. I think that must be something in the weather at the moment because I read uh, Dashiell Hammett's The Woman in the Dark last oh, week, yes. which was uh, excellent. And it's only about 50 pages, so it's sort of perfect for innovating heatwave conditions. Uh, I hear what's been your uh, escape route. Uh, I don't know necessarily if it counts as an escape route in the way that we normally discuss it, but I spent the weekend with Imaginary Homelands by Salman Rushdie, and this week it will be Midnight's Children. That's an excellent suggestion and I think a fitting fitting way to protest the... Uh, the man's ongoing vitality. Helena, your escape route this week? My escape route this week has been good old Netflix with uh, series three of Mindy Kaling's Never Have I Ever. Uh, I'm a big fan of it because it's great, I think, for brown girl representation. Yeah, it's it's a really funny comedy about the experience of an Indian American family. And I love it and it makes me happy. And mine has been uh, the new drama starting on BBC Three this week called Red Rose. And there's a full-length review of this coming up on the Culture Bunker next week. Uh, if you've seen the trailers, they look a bit schlocky and they don't really do it justice. The series itself is absolutely brilliant. It's like Videodrome meets The Ring meets Don't Look Now, set in Bolton over a summer holiday. The one-line sell is... Uh, 
teenage girl downloads an app on her phone which begins coercively controlling her. It is properly creepy. Um, it's really, really sinister. But I say avoid the trailer because I think it has a massive spoiler in it and it doesn't really do the series justice. But can't recommend that enough. And tune into The Culture Bunker on Saturday for a full-length review. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you to Gavin Esler. Thank you very much. To Ahir Shah. Thank you. And to our very special guest, Helena Wadia. Thank you so much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. If you like what we're doing, please do consider supporting us on the crowdfunding app, Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. You'll be helping us pay hardworking journos and producers, also me and I here, and you'll get benefits, including a shout-out on the podcast, like these. Hello from me to Robert Bethel, Theresa Attenborough and Thomas Jacks. Many thanks from me to Luke Scanlon, Nicholas Day and James Patterson. And finally, many thanks and best wishes from me to Stephen Kinsella, Amelia Bailey and Thomas Watt. See you next time. The Bunker was presented by Justin Quirk with Gavin Esler and Ahir Shah. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich and me, Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomasiewicz. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>